This podcast is produced for informational purposes and does not constitute any scientific, legal, or medical advice. The views and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are those of the guest alone and do not necessarily reflect the opinions and positions of the host or any other entity or organization. Listeners are encouraged to listen with an open mind and form opinions of their own. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Today, my guest is Kimberly Schaub, who is a food product developer, most recently with Bulletproof 360. Kimberly, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. This is a great honor. Kimberly, why don't you why don't you start and share with our listeners your background and the path that your career took? It was not uh, not necessarily the path that everybody takes in food product development. Yeah, it definitely was not a straightforward pathway. Um, and for a little while earlier in my career, I used to be embarrassed of kind of how ups and downsy it was and how kind of curvy it was. But I've really started to embrace how my unusual pathway has been a way for me to understand how I'm unique in the industry. So um, I have a nutritional science background from Pepperdine University. And that program really was designed to push all of its students towards PhD programs. But I was at Pepperdine on a US Air Force ROTC scholarship. And so I really wasn't as concerned about going into grad school. Um, So after I graduated with the nutrition degree, I went into the military and uh, managed dining facilities. I deployed individuals. Um, An an unusual skill I developed, I guess, was serving as a mortuary officer. It's not a skill I had to develop well, fortunately, but it was one of the other tasks that if a death occurred among your military members, then I was one of the people involved in that process. Oh my goodness, um, that must have been a tough job. It was interesting and it being in the military makes one grow up very quickly. Um, so I developed a strong backbone, which was helpful when it comes to the culinary world. Um, because, you know, each plate of food that you're served represents a piece of effort and soul that some cook or chef prepared for you. Um, And sometimes it's really challenging to receive feedback on that, especially when it's not, you know, peppered with uh, praise and and wonderment of the dish being created. So, um, you know, and then product development, the reason that we bring samples to our colleagues and ask them to taste this and fill in a little response form is because we're wanting to understand how to make it better. And you have to have a stronger backbone to um, handle some of that feedback, um, even if you disagree heartily with it. <laughs> so, um, and, and in all of that work, I started a podcast and website called Peas on Moss. Um, and that is a wordplay on mise en place, which is a French culinary term about having everything in its place. Um, and I learned how to say mise en place through an instructor saying peas on moss, and that just resonated with me. So I went with it. Um, and really, it's the, the word play is because nothing in our careers really goes exactly as planned. Um, and in product development, nothing really goes exactly as planned. So that's where peas on moss came from. And it's a podcast and website about the product development process and about the people who are involved in it. Yeah, I've listened to a number of your episodes, and it's a great podcast. I encourage listeners who are interested in how products get innovated and developed in the food industry to have a listen to your podcast. 
Thank you. So you you have at times had the had uh, the title or uh, part of your title has been culinology. For people not familiar with that term, can you give listeners a little bit of insight into that? Oh yeah, absolutely. I love sharing about culinology. Um, it is a term that the Research Chefs Association coined a um, number of years ago, and it was originally kind of combined or hybridized from culinary arts and food technology. Um, And it's kind of become culinary arts and food science, which is slightly different, but um, the the ethos is sort of the same, combining that culinary arts cross-functionally to create um, new products. So culinology is something that the Research Chefs Association talks about a lot for its membership because we sit in a really unique space between the culinary and food technology worlds. Um, And so those of us who work in that category will often call ourselves culinologists. Um, And the Research Chefs Association actually has a certification program for individuals who want to kind of be recognized for that work. So how did you how did you cross this path from having your degree in nutritional science to getting into culinology and getting into the creative aspects of product development? How did you how did you know it's one thing to understand the science behind ingredients and food and nutrition and all that sort of stuff. It's another thing to get creative. How did you how did you make that journey? The transition was uh, actually because someone misunderstood me <laughs> when I was volunteering at a soup kitchen. Um, I was planning to go back and get a master's of public health and um, was doing prerequisite courses for that. It had been a number of years since getting out of college. And I was volunteering where the chef asked me what I was trying to do. And I had said, RD chef, meaning registered dietitian and chef. So to go to culinary school, get my master's of public health. And, and again, have that mise en place all set up and ready to go. What he heard was R&D chef research and development chef. And he spent the rest of our shift talking about how amazing it was working with seasoning blends and um, in his work doing R&D. I was like, wait, what is this? And uh, for me, it felt like someone had turned on, turned up the lights in a dimly lit room when I didn't realize that the lights were dim to start with. And um, so I actually pulled out of the MPH program work and, um, enrolled in a local community college that was focused on sustainability. Um, And I told the chef instructors there, yeah, I want to be a research chef. And the response, you you know, across the board was, I don't even know what that is. But they were so helpful in helping connect me with chefs who were doing unusual things in the industry. And I was connected to the Modernist Cuisine team. They were working on the book Modernist Cuisine at Home, which was their follow-up to the first seven book series, Modernist Cuisine. And that really was where there was a gourmet celebration combining uh, food technology and fine dining. Um, And that's kind of where I learned what it was to develop an identity as a research chef. Again, founded founded in um, fine dining, Uh, but a lot of the tools and ingredients that we used are actually used at a large scale for food manufacturing. And that's really where I deliberately started weaving together uh, my love for nutrition science and fine dining and 
and developing an identity as a research chef. So tell us some of the companies and some of the products you've worked on. Uh, it's been a really fun adventure. So after Modernist Cuisine, I went to Beecher's Handmade Cheese, an artisan cheese company in the Seattle, Washington area. Um, and I ran the frozen food line for them. So we did frozen mac and cheese um, at a large scale. It's, it's available nationally at um, uh, some major national grocers, um, including Kroger and Safeway. Um, you can also find them in specialty stores like Wegmans, Whole Foods. Um, so that was my first foray into food manufacturing. Uh, from Beecher's, I went to Lundberg Family Farms and was the product development manager there. Had a food scientist working for me, and she worked on a lot of the rice meal kits that we had. Um, so rice in a seasoning packet. Um, and then I got to work on rice cakes, rice chips, and then introduce them into the frozen sector as well. And then most recently, I've been working with Bulletproof 360. They're known for putting butter in coffee um, and following kind of a branded ketogenic diet. And um, I was their first research chef to join the team. There was one other food scientist in the organization when I started. Um, and I ran all of the food and beverage for a while until we grew the team. And now they have uh, another senior food scientist who also works on a lot of the food and beverage that the brand has. And then um, some junior scientists who are specializing in some of those categories. So that's my manufacturing side of the world. All of this sounds like a pretty glamorous job. What's uh, tell, tell our listeners what it's really like day to day being in culinology and as a research chef. Such a great question. I know it sounds really fake. I think my parents suspect that I'm either actually a spy or not really working. <laughs> um, people think that I uh, eat all the time, which is part of it. You know, we have these really great conversations about what we're tasting. Um, but most of the day is not spent on innovation. It's spent on iteration work. What do you mean by iteration? Well, uh, let's say you and I um, have decided we're going to do a vegan cheese snack. Um, on a uh, corn chip. So that first conversation where we, we identify the type of product we wanna make and I've gone to the bench and I've done an initial pass at a formula and I have you taste it, that's the innovation piece, right? All of the work to go from version A to version J, if, if you're so lucky to get that done that quickly, um, that's all iteration work. So iteration one, iteration two, um, that's still a lot of bench work. And some of it is also sourcing ingredients and having conversations with our suppliers and really leveraging the um, access to raw materials that they have to improve on a concept. So you're spending less and less time on the bench and more and more time in meetings trying to figure out how to get the ingredient to make the finished product that you're looking for. And what, what are the kinds of things you talk about with suppliers, with ingredients? Is it whether this is going to scale properly? Is it sensory? What are, what are the conversations typically about? Um, it really does vary. I like to start with the end in mind, identify all of the claims that we're looking for to meet. So I mentioned vegan cheese. So non-dairy would be a type of claim we're going to pursue 
I would take that list of claims and talk to the suppliers about how they can fill those requests. Um, we don't want a surprise either in the supply chain or in the ingredient itself uh, later on. So I try to have those conversations up front with, um, with our suppliers. And so it sounds like it's really important to have close relationships with suppliers and to have a good network of suppliers to do that. Oh, absolutely. Um, most of the time when you're paying for consultancy or even um, were to hire me, uh, you are paying as much for my expertise as you are for the connections that I've developed over time. Um, if I were to call you and ask, you know, hey, I'm looking for this type of ingredient and it needs to do these, you know, have these attributes. Um, you and I had such a great working relationship last time. I'd love to be able to see if this is a new opportunity that's well suited for your company. That type of conversation only occurs through a network that's been developed and maintained um, and is one based on knowledge, true knowledge of that company. It's one thing to read a marketing packet. It's another to really understand who's doing the work and that they're doing what they say they're doing. What's your experience in general been with suppliers? Have you had some bad experiences or painful experiences with suppliers? I think all of us in this part of the industry has uh, stories of, of lessons that they've learned um, that, that could certainly be bad experiences with certain types of suppliers. There are probably some that I would rather not call back immediately. Um, but most of the time, my relationships have been very positive because the suppliers are there to bring you ingredients as a developer and as a CPG, bring you ingredients that, you know, help you achieve the product that you want to bring to the market. And they obviously want to stay in business. So uh, generally, my relationships have been very good. Um, and honestly, having a program where we can kind of all have access to comparable information so we can quickly um, decide how good of a fit a company is as a supplier. That's kind of the trick. Um, most of the time, you know, it's all kept in our own heads. But I think there are, there are so many more improvements in the market now for how we can integrate our information better and um, find each other more quickly. Mm -hmm. So when you were at Bulletproof 360, you had plans to roll out consumer insights and sensory evaluation for new product mm -hmm. development. What, uh, what did you feel made that an asset for Bulletproof 360? How are you going to leverage that? I think one of the things that we face in food startups and the smaller food businesses is that we're convinced that our product is the solution or the magic that our industry is lacking for some reason. And we can become distracted by how good we think our own product is, um, but not really know how the general population is going to uh, respond to it. And certainly you could launch product um, at national or even regional uh, retail outlets and just see how the sales go um, and use that information to tell you whether or not, you know, the formula you created is good. But you're talking about having to pay for manufacturing and packaging and shelf stocking fees and all of those um, costs just to get information about what the consumer thinks about your product. And you still have to figure out how to have them give you information other than sales numbers. 
Um, and so consumer insights can really be helpful because it, it deliberately places your product in the hands of your target consumer and they can give you direct feedback on whether or not they would buy that. And if they wouldn't, what would you need to do to that product so that they would buy it? Um, and I think that's where consumer insights would be really helpful. Um, there's a cost associated with, with um, getting those types of studies done. And so I advocate for companies kind of the size of Bulletproof to, um, to start incorporating that into their product development cycle because they have more skin in the game now. They're a known brand and um, they are trying to continue meeting consumer desire and the best way to do that is with insights from an organization. To me, it makes total sense to do studies with consumers, get their insight, say, do you like this product? Does it taste good? Would you buy it? Before you do a mass, full-scale rollout, that just seems like an obvious path to take in it. But it's not just about money, it's about time, right? Can you imagine taking all the time to months and months to get ready for a new product rollout and then find out it's a failure? Exactly. Yeah, a consumer insights from start to finish um, would take about a month to plan and a month to execute. And, and hopefully you've contacted um, an organization early enough so they've got placeholder dates and then you can send them products, they'll, they'll run the panels for you and then send you data. And so um, in a one month period, you can figure out if the consumers have really high purchase intent or if there's some tweaking needed before you go and produce, you know, jillions of units of that product that needed a relatively minor tweak, you know, and instead of launching something that's 85% of the way there, you could launch it at 95% of the way there. I'm here with Kimberly Schaub, food product developer and host of the podcast, Peas on Moss. So Kimberly, if you were to, you, you work for a number of food companies in different categories. If you were to look back on your experience, what would you say is, you know, either an average or a range of time from ideation to getting the product out to shelves for consumers? Oh, that's a great question. Um, the textbook answer is 12 to 18 months uh, from the kind of the first ideation meeting that you have to your product actually hitting the store shelves. And that includes you know, package design and consumer insights and um, production runs and confirmations of those formulas, etc. The more typical kind of food startup um, desired product development cycle is less than 12 months. The most success that I've seen is between nine and 12 months. That's still considerably expedited um, for the industry, but it is, um, a little bit more nimble for these younger startups that don't necessarily want to spend the time or money on it. So in, uh, on the longer processes. Mm -hmm. So in so in your career at these different companies, when you got pressure from your bosses, was the pressure, Kimberly, get the product out there faster, compress the the new product development time, or was or was the pressure get the product right? We don't care how long it takes. Um, really depends on the objective of the company itself. So with Bulletproof, because it's a really um, trend-forward company right on the cutting edge of ketogenic and other discussions and trends in the industry, 
Um, our focus was getting good product to the market as fast as we could. It wasn't going to be perfect. We knew there would be some reformulations and uh, things that would need to get fleshed out as our volumes increased. Um, but we wanted to get something to the market for our consumers as we expanded from the core bulletproof consumer to kind of the larger uh, category of natural foods consumers. For other companies like Lundberg Family Farms, where they have a really long heritage of um, high quality rice product on the market, it was more important to get the product really as close to perfect as we could and still meet the presentation timelines for our key retailers. Um, and so we had a little bit more time. We also started projects a lot sooner targeting a presentation date that was further out than what Bulletproof was targeting. Um, and that gave us time to build in potentially more than one consumer insights panel to really perfect uh, the product we were going to launch. Interesting. That's really interesting. It's an interesting uh, situation when you've got to look at uh, different goals and objectives for different classifications of companies like that. So when, when, you, when you look back across your career so far, what are some of the biggest challenges you've seen, Kimberly, in product development? I think the biggest challenge is being surprised by new information later in a product development timeline or project. Um, I, I think I said this before, but really, really start with the end in mind, the claims, the challenges that you might be facing and recognize and try to address them as early as possible. Um, so for example, uh, if you use a very specific ingredient that is sourced only from one country and one part of the country, possibly, uh, know that that's your limiting factor and that you're not going to be able to manufacture past that amount of product available to you. There are a couple of supply chain and purchasing kind of tricks to the trade, you know, as far as purchasing in advance and, and committing to certain volumes and really knowing that your supplier is, is going to be able to grow your volumes. Um, that's probably the biggest thing that um, causes problems later is you have a solid formula, but now you have an ingredient you can't buy anymore. Mm -hmm. And so then you have to reformulate. Yeah, so and that is heartbreaking. <laughs> like you said, start with the end in mind. Think about things like label claims up front and think, think about things like scale up front, sounds like. Exactly. I mean, and maybe scaling to 10 million units um, and thinking about scaling to 10 million isn't the number but maybe 2 million is, and you have to think about, okay, how do I get my first 2 million consistently to the market? And then perhaps that's a turning point for your brand to say, okay, this was really important to us at the 2 million level. Maybe it is or is not as important at the 10 million unit number. Um, and then you can decide which compromises are appropriate for the brand and which ones are not. Mm -hmm. well, looking back, what what do you consider to be some of your biggest successes with new product development? I think uh, one of the biggest successes that I'm most proud of is really helping a brand break into a new category and um, getting us introduced to um, the new network that's there. Every sector of the grocery store has a smaller professional organization of specialists who supply and produce to that category, whether that's frozen or snack or confectionery. There, there are organizations within that to, to help. So 
when Lundberg hired me to take in a well-established brand into the frozen sector, um, being able to meet the supply chain that feeds that category was my biggest success point because you're kind of stepping into something brand new. You don't really get to leverage brand um, brand reputation in a category that they're not in yet. So um, getting that opportunity, getting to um, to really uh, represent the brand in, in a positive way was a big success for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, getting into a new category, that's got to be, uh, it, it's got to be a big win when you can pull that off, but it's got to be nerve wracking as well. It is because you have to understand whether your brand is going to be accepted in that category. And I think that's a challenge that Lundberg took on um, well was understanding, okay, we can do frozen rice, but how do we want that launch you know, do we want that to look like a me too? And we just have more frozen IQF rice or do they want to be represented differently? Um, so again, starting with the end of mind, how do you want to show up in that part of the market? And then you can work back from there. So you've, you've interviewed quite a few product development folks in the food industry on your podcast, Peas on Moss. What have you, what have you noticed the most about some of their common struggles or, uh, or hurdles to overcome? I think the beauty of the podcast is I keep it really free form. And I, um, you know, the most direction that I do for the podcast is trying to help that developer or that guest on the show discuss and describe their superpower in product development. And we often do run into uh, similar challenges. Um, and I think the biggest theme that I've seen is never burning a bridge, that network, those relationships, even relationships that aren't as great as others. That is the key to success for, for good product development, for products that are going to survive in the marketplace. Um, so whether it's a research chef or an ingredient supplier, um, a service provider for the industry, it's that relationship that they foster throughout their career that has made the biggest difference in their personal careers and in the successes of the brands that they work for. Mm. And we, do you, when, you, when you talk about that, are you referring to mentors, suppliers, business colleagues, all of the above? Uh, all of the above, really. Um, you know, the, the network that you develop in school or as you first start to network into a new category, um, you develop relationships with suppliers. Sometimes they become mentors. Um, sometimes you hear a talk or attend a presentation that someone has given that just really resonates. And I have found that most of the people in the industry are very friendly. They do want to help. Um, some have more and less time. I would probably not pick the celebrities, but um, you know, that relationship, again, being able to pick up the phone or, or uh, log into LinkedIn and to reach out and say, hey, I'm looking for XYZ products. Could you help me or could you point me in the right direction? That has been really the superpower um, for me and for many of the guests that I've talked to. Wait, it's an interesting term, superpower. Do your guests have other superpowers that you've seen in new product development? I think being well organized um, and taking notes, even if they're not copious notes, but um, quickly jotting down a conclusion um, is another superpower. 
being able to to um, iterate to someone on the other line, okay, what I think I'm hearing you say is X, Y, Z, um, that ability to summarize and keep big picture and keep notes is uh, another major superpower that I've seen. So in new product development, how, how much of, of the process do you think just relies on a light bulb floating above your head where you have this brilliant creative idea that comes out of left field? In product development, very little <laughs> of the big light bulb moments and much more of the um, determination to dig into the, the um, nuance that's desired so the big light bulb idea, again, going back to our, our kind of silly example of a vegan snack, that's the light bulb moment. All of the solutions to get to the finished product are more iterations, more calling up a supplier and asking them to brainstorm together, um, again, to achieve whatever that end goal was. Mm-hmm. So there was a study done recently by the consulting organization McKinsey. They tracked new food product launches into the marketplace, and they found out that over a four-year period, only one out of every four of the new products launched were still on the shelves, which is an amazing statistic. So companies are striking out three out of four times over the long term. Do you, do you have any thoughts on why this is and what companies can do to manage it more successfully? I think there's a mix of um, factors going on there. Um, you could look at the business model side and see if that brand had an adequate um, runway planned in for their business to um, actually kind of wait for consumer excitement to build. Um, some of the uh, brands that I've seen have a really cool concept and they spent a lot of money on branding it, but they may or may not actually be ready to be not be profitable for the first couple of years. Um, I think that's a big challenge is, is uh, there's this hope that we're going to come up with this incredibly innovative product that will just change the industry and then Pepsi or someone like that will come and buy us for gajillions of dollars and that'll be my retirement plan. And I think that's a, a notion that needs to be released as soon as possible. Um, the other is that the consumer uh, interest wanes fairly quickly, even with big trends. And so when we look at trend insights with organizations or when we go to professional networking conferences and there are trend uh, presentations, the question isn't as much identifying the trends as it is identifying the trends that are going to stay um, and then understand how your brand wants to be represented or associated with a trend but to be evergreen beyond the life cycle of that trend. So specific to Bulletproof, I've talked a, a good bit about whether the ketogenic diet trend is going to stick around or if that's just gonna be maybe a longer flash in the pan, but still a flash. Um, and I think every brand needs to decide for itself with the data that it gets um, for whether a trend is gonna stick around. Um, Bulletproof has, has very strongly taken a position of being a branded keto diet. So if and when the limelight moves off that diet to something else, um, Bulletproof is going to have to pivot and understand how to message its brand 
so that it still stays relevant even as that trend falls off. It, it makes total sense to say, let's not just figure out what the latest trends are, let's figure out how much staying power each trend has. It makes total sense, but how do you do that? It's a great question. Um, <laughs> I think there are actually multi-million dollar companies trying to answer that. <laughs> um, some of it is perhaps not niching down too closely um, into a trend. It's fantastic to be the thought leader on a trend, but you'll find that the minute you look like you're not ahead of the pack, it's because the pack has started to overrun your tailcoats, kind of, coattails, and, um, and you might get left behind, even though you were the, the first to market or first to concept with it. Um, and so staying ahead of that is kind of the key. Um, and then really how to decide if this trend is gonna stick, that's really hard. I think, um, so plant-based is very large right now. Uh, perhaps vegan is a little bit too niche and off to the side. Maybe blending plant-based with um, animal-based protein is a good way to go because you're not kind of cutting out a whole category altogether. You're just reducing the usage. Um, you know, in ideas where a trend is taking on a huge movement, I would actually suggest um, making sure that a, you have a product that is true to that cause and then possibly a few that are adjacent that um, folks who are a little bit more omnivorous perhaps would be willing to take on. Mm. So I'm, a, uh, I'm somebody just starting my career, want to get into new product development for a food company. Maybe I've got a degree in, in uh, food science or nutrition, or maybe I've come the chef way into this. Um, what advice do you give to a new person starting out? I would give you a list of organizations to look into and see which ones resonate with you. For me, the Research Chefs Association was the one that, when I walked into my first conference there, a light turned on again where it was like, oh, these are my people. They get where I've come from. We have comparable passions and skill sets. Um, and, and that may be true for the Institute of Food Technologists for some people, um, especially if you have a food science degree, you've hopefully been able to be involved in your school club in food science and participated in other activities. But I would say your first uh, step to developing your superpower in the industry is get to know the industry. Go to the networking events, go to your regional events. They're, you know, they could be free, they could be $25. I would say they're absolutely worth it. Um, if your company doesn't sponsor a membership into those organizations, then paying for the individual events in your area is the next best step. And you'll build relationships from there. Um, older folks in the industry, which I guess I'm now included in, um, we like to attend those events and meet the young folks who are coming in and identify the high performers there. And then we'll bring you into the fold. Mm -hmm. And how about mentoring? How, how big a role does that play for new folks starting out? How big a role did it play for you when you were starting out? That's such a great question. I think mentoring has such like a capital M uh, aura to it, you know, where it's like, oh, we're going to do mentoring. And it's like, well, let's start with friendship. And, <laughs> uh, you know, so when you've networked with um, professionals in the industry at your local events, um, 
you know, offering to take some of them to coffee is fantastic. Be aware of how busy those individuals are. And a free cup of coffee is not always a great, um, <laughs> not a great hook for everyone. But even email is a great way to say, hey, Mr. So-and-so, do you mind if I ask you a couple of questions? Um, how do I get to know this part of the industry? Or how do I build, you know, I've graduated, I don't have corporate sponsorship for my membership, so I'm nervous about staying involved. What did you do? That is kind of the best way to indicate to that individual that you're interested in learning and asking smart questions. Um, and, and I think you'd be surprised by um, how willingly we give each other information. We're all competitors on the shelves, but we're all friends at the conferences. And um, I think mentorship has played a huge role in my life, but not as like the complicated mentorship programs that get talked about sometimes. Mm -hmm. So for your podcast, Peas on Moss, what's, uh, what's next on the horizon? Well, um, I have been so fortunate to meet amazing people uh, in the different conferences this year and reaching out to the authors and contributors in some of our organization's magazines. So I've, I have actually got a full book of uh, podcasts scheduled through the end of this year. I'm really excited. Um, I've, I've expanded beyond just farming the Research Chefs Association membership to a larger um, category of people. And I'm excited to have that information kind of cross-pollinate itself just through these conversations. Um, you know, Peas on Moss is a podcast about the industry by a research chef, and it's always going to be that. Um, so I, I don't have plans to, you know, take over the world or something with that, but to provide a platform for professionals to share their experiences, talk through some tough topics, and um, be an overall reference and resource for members of our industry, that's, that's the goal. Sounds exciting. Uh, having everybody book through the end of the year. It sounds like you're going to be a busy, busy podcaster. It's a lot of fun. These hours go very quickly. <laughs> so before we go into wrap up, any anything that you'd like to highlight or dig into, Kimberly? I think uh, I'm just so grateful for how podcasting as a medium has allowed us to share the different types of voices in our industry. I mean, from your podcast to um, Adam Yee's My Food Job Rocks to Katie Jones's Food Heroes podcast, you're really getting to see just how complex our industry is. I'm just grateful to be counted among them and uh, to get an opportunity to share other people's voices who don't have the time or guts to start a podcast. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been a learning process for me, too, and I'm much, much earlier in it than you are. But I've taken inspiration from you and some of those other folks that you mentioned. So thank you. Thank you so much. I think it's a great way that we establish our relationship more broadly in the industry as an expert, um, as a friend that can be contacted in the industry. Um, and, man, I learned so much from each of the podcast episodes I've listened to. Good advice. I want to thank my guest today, Kimberly Schaub, food product developer and host of the Peas on Moss podcast. Kimberly, thanks so much for being with us today. Pure pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.